Now, if you have your Bible, I would encourage you to go ahead and open it up to John chapter 12 today. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the back of the pew there in front of you, and you should be able to pull that out and find John chapter 12. It's going to be somewhere around page 1,000, I think, um, but I forgot to look it up this week, so I apologize for not checking that for you. As you're turning over there, if you've been with us uh, as we've been going through the study of John, and just in general, you know that one of the things I like to do is I like to give you one kind of main idea to take with you every week. We may have multiple points, and we bring up multiple things throughout the course of a message, but as I'm writing my sermon, I, I try to think of what's the one thing that I want you to walk out from here today with, okay? Now, uh, a lot of times I'll say that. In fact, I'll say it in the introduction of my sermon. You can listen for it. I'll say, if you don't catch anything else that I say this week, I want you to take out this. Or if you, catch, if you don't hear anything else, just remember this, right? So this morning, often, by the way, that makes it into my title, giving you a little behind the scenes of uh, how I write my messages and things like that, which I know you're just thrilled and all of you are in rapt attention about. But here's why I brought that up. It's because this week's, you might actually, as soon as you hear it, say, now that's something I can do, okay? If you catch nothing else from me this week, here's what I want you to take out of this message. Jesus calls you to hate your life to hate your life. Now, some of you said, hey, that's something I can do, right? Because you're like, if you knew the kind of week I was having, I hate my life right now, right? You can remember back to having an exasperated teenager or when you were that exasperated teenager who had everything felt like it was falling apart in their world and it was a big thing in their life and they just sit there and their response is, I just hate my life, right? You guys been there? Now, by the way, as you grow up and you get older and you look back at the things that stressed you out in high school and you look at the things that are stressing you out now and you say, if I hated my life back then, I really hate my life now, right? Okay, you guys with me? Now, now maybe I, I'm not spiritual as you guys are. Um, have you all never been at that point where you're just like, I hate my life, okay? Okay, all right. Uh, a lot of times, by the way, it's just the, the compounding of things. It's that death by a thousand cuts where it's like, you know, the car doesn't start and then you, you try to get a ride and your ride is late and then you get to work and the coffee's burnt. And, you know, like just, just all that little stuff and it just eventually adds up and you're like, I, just, I hate my life. Okay, well, that's not exactly what Jesus is meaning in this passage. Jesus is going to take us to a place where he's going to tell us to hate your life. But maybe it's splitting hairs, maybe it's not. I, I want to draw a distinction, though, between the difference of hating life and hating your life. Well, I would say most of us, when we get to that point of hating our life and say, I hate my life, it's actually that we hate life in general, right? Life is hard. Uh, to quote the great movie, The Princess Bride, life is pain, highness. Anyone who says differently is selling something, right? Life is just full of difficulty and pain. And so there are days where you hate life for the frustration, for the pain, for the, all the heartache and all those kind of things, right? That's not what Jesus is calling us to. In fact, actually, Jesus is calling us to something quite different than that. If you remember back in chapter 10, when we were looking at Jesus as the good shepherd, he told us that he came that we might have life and have it more abundantly, right? So the life that we're to have is this abundant, overflowing life. I, I don't think I can say that I hate life and that I have an abundant life. I, I don't think those two can, can live together. However, what we find is the abundant life that Christ offers us is found in hating our life in this world. Now, as we see this, we're going to be going through John 12. I want you to keep your Bible open to John 12 this morning because we're going to kind of jump around the chapter a little bit. I want us to read the section where Jesus actually talks about hating your life. 
And then what we're going to find is John actually gives us some examples of what this should and should not look like as he goes throughout the rest of the chapter. I'm going to go ahead and tell you, I've got some points up there. But truthfully, I almost left them out. They're mainly in there just for us to have a hook to kind of know as we're going through. Really, this whole message is revolving around this idea of what does it look like to hate my life, okay? Uh, so now, let's dive in and actually read what Jesus says. So here in chapter 12, jump down to verse 23. We're picking up in the middle of the conversation. We'll go back and put some context to this in a minute. But Jesus replied to him, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. Now, here's our key verse. The one who loves his life will lose it. And the one who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now, there you go. There's the key. Verse 23, he talks about the fact that he's about to be glorified. He's referring to himself as the Son of Man, which is one of the titles that's used of the Messiah in the Old Testament. He's saying, I'm that guy, and I'm about to be glorified. That idea of glory is going to come in a big way again for us, just like it was last week. We're going to keep seeing glory is a key key idea throughout the rest of the book of John as we're looking at what God's doing. So Jesus is saying, verse 23, I'm getting ready to be glorified through his death, his burial, and his resurrection. But then in verse 24, he kind of speaks of himself as he says, a grain of wheat, if it falls in the ground, it dies, but it doesn't stay alone because the, the plant that comes out has all of these grains of wheat that come with it, right? So then he goes into verse 25, which is where we pick up and where we're kind of focusing in this morning, that if you love your life, you will lose it. But if you hate your life in this world, you'll keep it for eternal life. Now, that phrase, in this world, That's the key phrase. That's the important thing for us. This is what helps us understand what Jesus is saying. He's not telling you that you should hate going around miserable all day long and waiting for the time when you can fall asleep just to get a break from the drudgery of life, all right? We've probably all been there where it just, all you are doing is from the moment you wake up, you're living until you can finally lay back down at a reasonable hour and just go on with life because it's just so hard. That's not what he's calling us to do to hate our life. As he talks about hating our life in this world, Here's how Grant Osborne, a New Testament scholar who passed away, said it. It's critical to realize that what Jesus actually says is, anyone who hates their life in this world, meaning to hate the world and its things, okay? The disciple who focuses on worldly life rather than on Jesus will in the end have nothing. Moreover, by despising the worldly life and turning from it, we gain not just life, but eternal life. What a trade-off, giving up the temporary in order to gain the eternal. So he's talking about life in this world. That's the stuff we see, the stuff we spend so much of our life chasing after, our feeling, our comfort. As John talks about in his letter, he says, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. That's making our bodies feel good, making our eyes want stuff more all the time, and hoping we can get a pat on the back and be affirmed by everybody else. Jesus says to truly be his disciple, to have eternal life, we have to hate those kinds of things. He said, in fact, actually, I love the way that the Net Bible translates. It's a a unique translation. Here's how they put it. They said, the one who loves his life destroys it, and the one who hates his life in this world guards it for eternal life. Okay? The one who loves his, his life destroys it, and the one who hates his life in this world guards it for eternal life. So here's the challenge for us. How do I relate to living in the world? 
How do I live in such a way that I'm honoring Jesus and hating this kind of life? Let's think about it from a different angle. I mentioned to you verse 23. He said, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. Now we've talked a lot about God's glory throughout our series in John. One of the things that we mentioned about it, we usually define it as God's majestic presence. It's the idea of when God shows up with his power and his majesty and his his glory is just this other thing that you can't really describe or wrap your mind around. In the Old Testament, the idea of glory was the idea of weight or weightiness. Okay, so to give God glory is to give God the weight that he deserves. All right, how many of you guys have had a wet, soppy yard all week this week? Okay, all right. Did any of you accidentally run off the edge of your driveway and drive through? Okay, what happens? You get this big old rut where the weight of the tire pushed the mud out of the way, and you've seen that there was a weight that went through there and changed things, right? So to give God glory, for Jesus to be glorified in our lives, means that we're going to give him the weight that he deserves. We're going to put him in the place that he deserves. We're going to honor him. We're going to make sure that our lives revolve around him, that he is more important to us than anything else, because we love him so much that we hate anything that would distract us from it. That's what he's going to be telling us this morning. We're going to see that picture in a couple different places in a couple different ways. Uh, What we're going to see is, uh, first off, the example of Mary and Martha and Lazarus as they gave that weight to Jesus that he deserved. Then we're going to look at the crowd and some others and see that they weren't willing to give Jesus the weight that he deserved, and we're going to try to draw a contrast. So my question for you this morning for you to wrestle with is, do I love living in this world Or am I hating my life in this world so that I can give Jesus the weight he deserves? Now, again, that's really theoretical and that's really kind of abstract. So let's put something practical with it. I think John's done a great job of that. So turn back to the first verse here in John, chapter 12, excuse me. So hating our life in this world is kind of the first picture we get. As we look at Mary, Martha, and and Lazarus, uh, that first thing that we see is hating your life in this world. Look in verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, the one Jesus had raised from the dead. We talked about this last week. We looked at the story of Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus who was dead and Jesus raised them from the dead. By the way, we're now within the last week of Jesus's earthly ministry before he goes to the cross. So if you look at it, there's still a whole lot of the book of John left. You'll notice that Jesus' ministry lasted probably about three years and John spends about half of the book just on the last week of Jesus' earthly ministry. So the, the time frame is getting slowed way down here. And here's back with Mary and Martha and Lazarus here, just some days before the Passover. He's there at their house, and they're, or excuse me, not necessarily at their house, but he's there taking a meal with them, okay? So verse 2, So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha was serving them, and Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Now, so far, that makes sense, right? You remember we talked about in Luke when we were first introduced to Martha. What's Martha up doing? Well, she's up doing all the chores. She's the one who's serving everybody. She's making sure that everything's taken care of, and she's mad that Mary isn't, right? We've seen that Martha's the more active. Mary's the more contemplative, the more tenderhearted, the more reflective. And so Martha's here. She's helping serve the meal. Lazarus is there at the table with them, as would be expected. He's kind of either it's in their home or he's an honored guest either way. But then verse 3 is where it gets really interesting. Then Mary took a pound of perfume, pure and expensive nard, anointed Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. So the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. 
Then one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was about to betray him, said, why wasn't this perfume sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. By the way, John doesn't mince words. Some people have the idea that Judas was just kind of um, conflicted and, and just he, he got the wrong idea about who Jesus was. John doesn't seem to be under that delusion. Uh, he seems to be pretty clear, clear about it. So he didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was thief. He was in charge of the money bag and would steal part of what was put in it. Verse 7, Jesus answered, leave her alone. She's kept it for the day of my burial. You'll always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. This is a perfect picture of what it looks like to hate your life in this world, of the kind of giving Jesus the weight and the glory that he deserves. Here's what Mary does. She comes in. She takes a pound of pure perfume, pure nard, which nard is not lard, just for the record, okay? (laughs) Not the same thing. But she comes in and she anoints Jesus' feet. She wipes him with her hair. Now, for us, we immediately say, well, he says like 300 denarii. That sounds expensive. There's some things we can catch, but guys, in the culture, there's a lot that we don't understand here. It's different for us. See, Mary, in this one act, demonstrated total abandon for Jesus. She put everything in his hands. First off, there's the financial side of it. He said it was worth 300 denarii, okay? A denarius was a day's wage for a typical wage worker. So if you think minimum wage for a full day's work, 300 denarii would basically have been a year's salary because remember the Jews had the Sabbath days and the festival days where they weren't allowed to work and things like that. So basically they worked about 300 days a year. So he, she just poured out a year's salary on Jesus. In an instant, it's gone and done. Now, that's a a huge financial burden. This may have been her life savings. Keep in mind, you you didn't have a bank account back then. You you didn't have the same kind of currency, the transferring hands the way that we do it now. It was different. Most of your money was tied up in non-liquid assets, although this is semi-liquid because it's perfume, right? But all right, y'all got to wake up. But in this moment, she takes at least a year's worth of wages possibly her entire life savings, and pours it out on Jesus' feet. So she obviously cares more about Jesus than she cares about her money. She's hating this life and not getting caught up in the material side of things. But there's another aspect of this. We don't know for sure, but it's very possible that 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 perfume was actually her dowry. In other words, when she was going to get married, This was the only thing of value that she had to offer to her husband. So not only does she give up her financial stability, she may actually be sacrificing her ability to get a husband, her to get married, her ability to have a family. In this moment, in one instant, she's not just giving up her finances, she's giving up her future. And she's pouring it all out on Jesus. To Judas, it sounds like a waste, but to Jesus, it seems like it's exactly what it was supposed to be. Even if it wasn't her dowry, the other thing you've got to understand is feet are gross, okay? Feet are gross now when we have shoes. Feet are extra gross back then when you didn't wear enclosed shoes all day and you walked around in dirt streets with animals that traveled the same path. 
Okay, so for Jews, this was one of the most humiliating things you could do to touch somebody else's feet. It was a task that was assigned to the lowest servant in the household for him to wash the feet of the guests when they came in. What does Mary do? Not only does she pour this perfume out or or rub this perfume onto Jesus, she actually takes her hair and wipes it on Jesus. Not only is it disgusting enough for you to do that, just as far as it's just physically gross, this is completely culturally wrong. She wasn't allowed to take her hair down. She wasn't allowed to touch somebody who wasn't her husband. And even then, it was unlikely that she would have touched him in public. And yet, here she is. She's at his feet, wiping with her hair down her most expensive gift that she has. Her future, her finances, all of her social structure. She's laying it all at Jesus' feet and saying, I don't care about any of that. All I care about is you. When Jesus says that the one who hates his life will guard it to eternal life, this is what he's saying. She lays everything down. Her financial status, her future, her dignity. She didn't care. She laid everything at his feet. Her sacrifice in that moment flowed out of a heart that had already been devoted to him. Remember what we said last week? Every time we see Mary, we find her at Jesus' feet. She was at his feet when he was at her house and she was learning and, and she was there. When, when she came and met him after Lazarus had died, she fell at his feet for comfort and for, for care. And then now she's anointing his feet and falling at his feet, wiping them with her hair out of an act of devotion and love. She didn't care about her life. I want to be careful, guys. I know that there's a lot of talk these days about self-care and about those kind of things making sure you're fighting for your rights. and Mary didn't care about any of that. This was a moment of reckless abandon where she just poured everything out. No turning back. There's no putting this back in the jar, by the way. It's gone. It's done. Because Jesus was that weighty to her. She wanted to glorify him in this way. So, Do you hate your life like Mary did? Now, as we look at this, this is a one-time thing, right? By the way, I think there's two different people who anointed Jesus. Um, If you want to get into the fun of trying to mesh the synoptic gospels in John here, I I think Luke is actually talking about somebody different. Uh, But here in, in this account, this is the only time Mary ever has this lavish of a gift to give to Jesus, right? This is a no going back kind of thing. So what does it look like to hate your life on a daily basis? What does it look like to do this every day? Well, you see it. Where do you find Martha? Martha's serving. She's using her gifts, her talents, her abilities to make sure that Jesus is taken care of and well, uh, uh, well welcomed as he should be, as the, the leader that he should be. Martha's there using her gifts and her talents and abilities because Jesus is worth it. What about Lazarus? Lazarus is just sitting at the table. Hey, that's actually a really big deal. You know why that's a big deal? Because Lazarus had created a problem for the Jewish leaders. Everybody was amazed when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. So all kinds of people started following him. So jump down to verse 9. Then a large crowd of the Jews learned he was there. They came not only because of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, the one he'd raised from the dead. 
but the chief priests had decided to kill Lazarus also because he was the reason many of the Jews were deserting them and believing in Jesus. So yeah, Lazarus may just be sitting at the table, but he's there. He's not hiding. He's not ashamed or or trying to recant on the story of what happened. He's sitting there boldly identifying himself with Christ in that moment, putting his life literally at risk. There were people who wanted to kill him because of what he was doing. See, it may not be that although Mary's gift is the most lavish and a great representation of her heart, you and I can't pour perfume out on Jesus' feet every day and wipe him with our hair. But we can make sure that I'm willing to identify with Christ, even if somebody wanted to kill me for it. That's what Lazarus was doing. I can do what Mary was doing. I can make sure, or excuse me, Martha was doing where where I'm using my gifts and my talents, my resources. I'm serving him. I'm serving others. I'm trying to make sure that things are taken care of for his name and his glory, not so that people will look at me, but so that they'll look to Jesus as the one who's weightier than all this. Again, Mary's is, is the clearest picture for us of hating our life. But we see it in Martha. We see it in Lazarus. We see it all throughout the Bible. We see it in guys like Caleb. Caleb is one of my favorite characters in the Bible. 85 years old. For those of you guys who don't remember the story necessarily, when God called his people out of Egypt and put, was taking them into the promised land, they sent a dozen spies in to be able to, to look over the land and make sure that, that everything was uh, ready for them to come in and, and do the conquest. There were two guys, Joshua and Caleb, who came back and said, yep, there's a lot of scary people in there, but our God's bigger than any of that. Unfortunately, the other 10 said, there's no way we can do this, and they swayed the nation. So then they wandered around in the desert for 40 years, and everybody from that generation, except for Joshua and Caleb, died in the wilderness and were not allowed to go in for the conquest. So now we find, as we're reading in Joshua, that Caleb is now 85 years old at the end of the time where they've gone through and they've done the conquest. So he was 40 when they went in to to check out the land the first time. Then they wandered for 40 years. And now it's been five years they've been in taking over the promised land. At 85 years old, Caleb comes up and says, hey, look, God made me a promise that the land that I walked on would be mine one day, 45 years ago. And he said, now I'm here to call that promise out. He said, I want that mountain right there. There's still bad guys on it. We're going to take care of that. And at 85 years old, he's leading his family to take over land that the rest of Israel hadn't been able to drive out in five years. It actually says there at the end that he was faithful to do all that the Lord his God commanded him because he cared more about the promises that God had made and honoring God and giving him glory than he did about coasting into retirement. At 85 years old, he's fighting and doing what God's called him to do. This is the kind of devotion we see out of the Apostle Paul. As he's heading back to Jerusalem, knowing that he's about to get arrested and possibly eventually facing execution and years down the road a little bit, but didn't know that at the time, he said this in Acts 20, 24. I consider my life of no value to myself. My purpose is to finish my course and the ministry I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of God's grace. Paul said, I don't care about my life. I consider my life of no value to myself. It's no thing. Why? Because Jesus mattered so much to him. Nothing in this life matters. 
that's what it looks like to hate your life. Say, I, I don't care. I don't care what people think. You know, we've gone on mission trips, and at times somebody in, in the family will say, why are you wasting all that money to go on that trip? Why are you taking that time off of work? Well, you know, sometimes we'll have folks who say, you know, my boss got mad at me for taking two weeks off and didn't understand why I'd go to the other side of the world and sleep in a tent and all this kind of stuff. Why? So that people can know who Jesus is. Because at some point, somebody told me the gospel or somebody told our team members the gospel, and they want to take the gospel to people who've not heard and who need to know Jesus right? That's hating your life in this world. You guys met Ryan and Kelly Day, missionaries in Japan. Ryan and Kelly are amazing people. For the last nine years, they've been overseas. They've come back off and on, but they have given up a lot to serve the Lord in Japan. There's been family things that they've missed. There's been time that they could have spent with ailing parents that they missed. Why? Because they love Jesus so much that they're willing to go to the end of the world if that's where God calls them to go. Now, God may call you to go across the street, and sometimes that's harder than going around the world in your mind. But the question is, do you hate your life? Not are you just miserable, and, and but is Jesus so important to you that you hate this world and everything in it in contrast to the way you love him. He's the weighty one. Now, let's, let's put this in a little bit of a contrast. What's it look like to love the world? Well, we're going to see that as we love our life in this world. We see that down in verse 12. This is the triumphal entry. This is something we usually wait till closer to Easter to talk about. But like I said, we've got so much to cover in John. We're going to hit this now. It says, after the, the discussion about the fact that they were trying to kill Lazarus, it said, the next day when the large crowd that had come to the festival heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took palm branches and went out to meet him. They kept shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it written, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. Look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now, all of this sounds great, right? Jesus, he's the, the king of Israel. And they're right, he is. Jesus is coming, and they're all excited, and it seems great on the surface, doesn't it? But here's the thing. As you look through what John gives us, the little cues around this, this was just on the surface. They weren't surrendering to Christ. They were excited about the stuff that Christ was going to bring. See, God had made promises to Israel throughout the Old Testament that he would one day send a king, a Messiah, a special person who would be this one who would lead Israel to a place of prominence. They knew that one day the Messiah would set up his rule and reign over earth, and so they thought, this is it, because this is obviously the guy. He raises people from the dead, he heals people, he's teaching with authority, this is it, and I want in on that. They're not here to worship the Messiah. They're here to ride his coattails to victory. In all of that, they missed that there were other prophecies that God had made about this one. Prophecies that said that he would suffer, that he would die. They didn't catch all that. So they were ready to welcome him as king, but not of them. They thought they were going to get to enjoy the blessings of being a part of it because they wanted the stuff that came with that. Now, you say, well, Sean, where are you getting that? Well, because again, verse 9, they not only because of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus. 
I mean, come on, guys. This would draw a crowd. This guy used to be dead, and he's not anymore. Wouldn't you want to come see that? Whether you cared about following Jesus as your Lord or not. Then down in verse 17. Meanwhile, the crowd, which had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to testify. This is also why the crowd met him, because they had heard he had done this sign. See, they're there because of the stuff that they've seen Jesus do. They're not there to glorify him and give him weight and and sacrifice like Mary and Martha and Lazarus had done. They're excited because they think this is their ticket to a better life. And my challenge to you is this, is that you? By the way, how how do we know that this is the case? Again, what John's been saying here. Although this was exactly in fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 9 and other things that was there, the crowd was there for the stuff, not for the Savior. Now, there's an even more tragic picture at the end, towards the end of this chapter that I want you to see. Uh, by the way, more insight, just in case you think that I'm still wrong and these people were genuinely trying to celebrate Jesus. Verse 37, even though he had performed so many signs in their presence, they did not believe in him. Okay? They had seen the signs, but they didn't want to surrender to the Savior. They weren't willing to hate this life. They wanted to get the good stuff. You know how we can tell? Jump down to verse 42. Nevertheless, many did believe in him, even among the rulers, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him so that they would not be banned from the synagogue. For they loved human praise more than praise from God. For they loved human praise more than and they loved praise from God. Chew on that one for a second. Is that you? Which matters more to you on a daily, practical basis? The opinion of others or the opinion of God? Now here's my challenge to you. We know that the majority in the crowd were not right with God because they were just there for the signs and the stuff. They weren't there for Jesus, right? What about this last group? Where do they fall? Yeah, they believed in Jesus, but they were too afraid to commit to him. They liked human praise more than the praise from God. Now, go back to what Jesus said. How many categories did Jesus give us in verse 25? The one who loves his life will lose it, and the one who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. How many categories is that? Two. So you love your life or you hate your life. These groups who kind of wanted to believe in Jesus but were scared and refused to fully commit to him, Which category were they in? Did they love their life? Did they hate their life? I would argue because they loved the praise of men more than they loved the praise of God. These people did not hate their life. They weren't right with God. They weren't saved. To me, 
as a pastor in the South, this is one of my greatest concerns. That some of you, if I gave you a, a Bible trivia question test, or you know, when we had the countdown that had the trivia questions this morning, you might get every single one of them right. If I asked you to tell me the gospel about how Jesus died on the cross and was buried and rose from the grave, you could give me all of the things. You could walk me through the Roman road or some plan of salvation. But the reality is you are too afraid of what it will cost you to go all in with Jesus. You're holding on to your life and you'll lose it. You'll destroy it. So my question is, which of these do you most identify with? Are you in the situation where where you recognize, like Mary, I've come to the point where I have laid everything at Jesus' feet? My finances, my future, my social standing, my anything, my dignity, whatever. It's all, I I don't care. I'm at the point where Paul says, I don't care about my life. I I remember when I was getting ready to go on my first mission trip to Africa. I was going to Kenya. And I sat down with a a retired missionary by the name of Jim Rice. Jim and Linda go to Grace Life. They're incredible people. Spent years and years and years serving the Lord in Uganda and Kenya. And I asked him, to, he had, or the group that we were going with, asked him to come and sit and talk to us about what do we need to know about going on a mission trip to Africa. And one of the things that he's sitting there, you know, make sure you shake everybody firmly by the hand. The women are stronger than you are, so make sure you give them a good strong handshake, you know. And also, by the way, make sure that you've settled in your heart that you may not come home. He said that in the same tone of voice with the same amount of weight as don't forget your toothbrush. Because for him, it was settled reality that his life was not his own, that that's just part of it. Is that where you're at? Or are you living to try to get the stuff, to try to get the notoriety, to try to get the comfort, to try to get the the family to finally be what you wanted it to be? Guys, today you've got to hate your life and give Jesus the weight that he deserves. By the way, as you go through all this, remember that the God who called you to hate your life and glorify him already did that for you. Remember verse 24 when he said that if a grain of the wheat falls to ground and dies, that it brings with it more when it comes back, doesn't come back alone, Right? That's what Jesus did. In just a matter of days from when this was taking place, Jesus would go to the cross and he would hang there for you and for me, taking my sin and my shame as we've already been singing about today. He would hang on the cross and die in my place and be buried just like that. But then three days later, he rose from the dead. Death was arrested, right? I love the double entendre there. There's death as arrested both as far as chained up and death was arrested as in stopped, right? In that moment, when Jesus rose from the grave, he proved that he could come back and defeat death itself. And he stopped death in its tracks. Now he offers you life. So when he's telling you to hate your life in this world, he's not calling you to do something that he hasn't already done. So will you respond by glorifying him, by giving him weight, by saying, Jesus, just like Mary did, I want to lay everything at your feet. Now, if you've never done that this morning, 
What we're going to do in just a minute is I'm going to have everybody bow their head and close their eyes. It's not so that anything weird takes place. It's so that you can have some time in the quiet there without a lot of distractions to do business with God. And if you want to talk with me about putting your life in Jesus' control like that, you can come talk with me. You can do it right where you're at. You can just tell him, God, I want you to have the glory in my life. I want, I want you to have the weight in my life. I want to stop doing my thing, and I want to turn to following you, and I need you to forgive me for my sin, okay? You can pray something like that. There's no magic words. Just transfer your trust from you to him. I'd love to talk with you about that. But if you're here this morning and you know Jesus is your Savior and Lord, are you still living with that kind of reckless abandon, or are you still trying to turn back and, and pick up what the world's got to have to offer as well? Bow your heads with me and close your eyes. Let's go and do this now. I'm going to invite Daniel just to come up and play in the background again, just not because we're trying to do anything weird, but just because we want to give you some time and some space to do this with God. Again, if, if you have felt convicted through this, if God's shown you where you're wrong somewhere and you need to change, remember, I didn't mention names anywhere. So if that was you, then the Holy Spirit must be doing something because it's not me. So are you living a life where you're living to give Jesus the weight and glory he deserves, hating your life in this world, living for him? Where are you allowing yourself to drift back and pick up some of those attachments to things or to status or to comfort and not willing to lay that all down for Jesus? Would you ask him to give you the strength to address whatever you need to there? And again, if you've never surrendered to Christ, come talk to me about it if you need help. Maybe you want to recommit and you want to make these steps an altar, so you just want to come down here and pray and I'll, I'll leave you alone. You just do business with God. Unless you want me to pray with you and then come get me. But would to God that he would help us to use whatever time we have in this life to give him the way he deserves. Just continue with your head bowed and your eye closed. Do business with God. And then I'll close this in prayer in just a moment. Father, as I think about the people in this room, I don't know every story and I certainly don't know every heart. But you do. I think of our children and our teenagers who are trying to figure out what it looks like to follow you for the rest of their lives. Would you set in them patterns that will guide them and lead them from here on out? Would you help them to be able to rest in you? To find you as worth more than anything else? Guide and lead them. And Father, I think about our college students. As many of them are in dorms or apartments, in classes around people who aren't following you and as they work through what it looks like to honor you in the midst of campus, in the midst of career, as they're seeking your guidance as to where and what's next and what degrees and even what spouse and things, I pray that you would guide them, help them to trust in you, to live with that reckless abandon that we see in Mary. We've got some young marrieds in this room. As they're setting out the foundations of their marriage and their family life together, I pray that you would guide them to help their homes to radically be oriented around Christ. 
not get caught up in keeping up with the Joneses or the priorities of the world around us, but instead to trust you with everything. For our single young adults, I thank you for the way that you're working in them and giving them freedom during this season to invest in you and in your kingdom in unique ways. So God, help them to live with reckless abandon as they think about their future and their faith and their families and finances and all these things. For those of us who are approaching middle age, looking at what life looks like in the second half, would you help us not to get burnt out or dissatisfied with life in such a way that we miss the abundant life you have for us and help us to be able to invest in these last half of our lives so that at 85, we'd still be like Caleb, just looking for that next hill that you want us to take to give you the weight and glory you deserve in the second half of our life. For those who are retiring, I pray that you would give them wisdom to know how you want them to use this season as they're facing freedom or time with grandkids or or whatever it may be, I pray that you'd give them your peace and your wisdom, help them to find their identity in you, not in their job or what they used to do. Father, I, I pray that as well for those who are in that fourth quarter, those who may have lost a spouse, some even outliving children, who are facing the decline of their physical bodies, their possibly even the decline of their mental capacity, I pray that you would give them strength to follow you well in this fourth quarter of life. To say all the way till their last dying breath that Jesus is worth it. God, we pray that throughout our lives, in every stage, in every circumstance, that we would give you the weight you deserve because you're the God who died for us. Thank you for all that you do. Thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.